Hi everyone, this is part one of Should We Sing Bethel Songs? Make sure to tune in to part two, which will be posted in probably just a few days. Let us know your feedback and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to a place where conversations matter and truth matters even more because Phil did such a great job last time. I thought he kind of made the cut and he was welcome back in for another conversation. And I'm really excited about, and a little nervous, about today's conversation because it's kind of a touchy topic. It's about worship and music, musical worship specifically. And we're looking even more specifically at Bethel worship music and whether or not we should be singing that in our churches, whether we should be singing it individually. We're really going to cover all of that. And so I'm going to walk you through a couple of reasons why we're talking about this. Phil doesn't know everything that we're going to look at or talk about today. He's going to give his impressions and his, I guess, feedback to some of the clips and some of the um, some of the quotes that I'm going to be reading to him and to all of you. And we're going to try to reason through with each other um, whether or not these songs and this musical worship group should be promoted in our churches. So I want to start off with why we sing in general. And uh, Psalm 149.1 gives a good reason for that. Psalm 149.1 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. And the reason why I picked this particular song, not only does it have to do with music, but it says that we are to sing corporately together. And it says to sing in the congregation of the godly godly ones. So we're sp- supposed to be participating in musical worship with each other, not just, we're not worshiping necessarily in song with people who aren't a part of God's family. Okay, so worshiping through music is obviously a spiritual endeavor where we're called to do that in scripture. We've been having conversations kind of recently about how some people have the idea, most Mostly it's people that are outside of the church, but as if singing is like kind of an extra to coming together in church and being with each other, that really the sermon's the main topic. Singing is kind of superfluous, and people have been using this argument a little bit with why do, you know, why do churches really need to meet in person? Why do they have to sing? You know, singing is going to, might transmit coronavirus, but there is a deep biblical um, what would you say, truth, that singing is part of the DNA of being a Christian, of worshiping God. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the meeting of Christians together is not, not what people who, well, t- the way that people in new, the news media talk about church and why, it's like they think all we do is come together, we hear a talk, and we leave. And yeah, they're singing, but you can do all that at, at home. But there's something different when you're in a room together with people, and there's prayer together, there's singing together, there's giving, and there's a sermon, the opening of God's Word, and there's fellowship before and after and and there's fellowship during just being in the same room it's all part of us worshiping god in that formal sunday setting 
and it's important it's so important that we should not forsake it uh, perpetually it would be more deadly to us spiritually to not meet than it would be physically for us to meet mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. thanks for that so we talked about what we do together as believers we, we worship together but now i want to ask another question is who is leading us in that endeavor and to, to worship God, to worship together corporately? So we know that we're singing with believers, we're worshiping with believers, but who should be leading us? So let me ask the first question. Would you be comfortable, let's say, if our worship pastor wrote a song and you found out that he's actually an atheist? Would you be comfortable singing that song and being led by him in worship? I would say no if he was a hidden atheist the whole time. But if he thought he was a believer or if he believed in that moment and wrote a song and then later on drifted away, that's a, that's a little bit different. In time, like he is an atheist, he is an avowed atheist, and he wrote a song, and he wants you all to sing it, and he's leading. Yeah, I'm not buying that. (laughs) Um, No. Why? I think that part of this conversation is going to come down to not just whether something is wrong in in and of itself, but there are options. And so if we have the option to sing that song that's written by someone who says they don't even believe in God and it's about God, and we have an option to sing a song that our brothers and sisters in Christ have been singing for generations, you know, an old hymn or a new song that's written by someone who does profess to know Christ, why would we sing the song that it was authored in less than ideal circumstances was authored by someone who doesn't even believe in the core tenets of our faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a follow up. So you probably wouldn't be super comfortable if our, our worship leader was an atheist, right? No. <laughs> okay. That's, I mean, I mean, I have a follow up though. Just hold on. If you have additional thoughts, that's okay. But let me kind of add to that. Let's say that, okay, our worship leader at church isn't an atheist, but let's say they're, they're, um, Latter-day Saint. They're they're a Mormon. Let's say a a, a Mormon writes a song. That maybe they're not even part of our church. They write a song from uh, one of the stakes. I think it's called <laughs> down down the road. And they come to our church and they said, "I've, I've written a really great worship song. Um, would you guys please sing it at um, an an upcoming Sunday, or even maybe sing it with us at an upcoming Sunday?" What would be your response? Again, I would say no, I don't, I wouldn't want to. I don't, I, what I was going to say before was I don't know that I would use the word comfort. Am I comfortable mm-hmm. singing it? Yeah. Um, I might use comfort. C- comfort might be the word I would use when, what we're going to talk about more later where it, it's people who are writing the songs where it's less clear how unorthodox they are. Maybe they espouse some orthodox beliefs and some things that are not core essentials to Christianity, but second or third degree, you know, secondary or tertiary issues. 
that would that we would disagree on and that's where I'd be am I comfortable doing this or not comfort doesn't even enter into the equation if the person who wrote the song if I if I have direct knowledge that they're a heretic So the purpose of me asking these questions is obviously because I think that I'm going to present to you some what could be aberrant theologies within Bethel music and Bethel church and see, you know, how far away or how close does one have to be to orthodox theology, what we would consider orthodox theology, for us to join them, not only join with other professed believers, but be led by them into worship. So whether or not we join in singing is one, one point of concern, one point of concern for me. The second point of concern is what happens after that. So anytime a song is sang in a worship service, the authors of that song are usually put on a big screen right to give credit to whoever wrote the song that's the law that's the law yeah, yeah so hopefully you're doing Copies that law, yeah. hopefully you're doing that so obviously it's easy to see oh bethel wrote this song hillsong wrote this song sovereign grace wrote this song right and what happens over time is those songs come become part of christian culture largely they're sung in the car. They're sung, obviously, in worship services. They're sung at concerts. Your they're kids sing them. Your kids sing them while they're sitting on the toilet. Yes, they hear that. There's theology within the music, but there's also theology when you go outside of the music and start listening to sermons from those same people. It's a really difficult line to toe when you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm not comfortable with most of their teaching necessarily, but I really like their music. So that's really what I want to get into is, and the reason that I'm pressing this is that there isn't a clear distinction between, oh, I can, I can go ahead and, and sing in worship and be led in worship by these people, but I'm not really going to be taught by them. Do you think that is cause enough cause for concern and that there's not really a clean line between one or the other. Maybe you could call it a blurry line, but I think that perhaps there is no line. You were always being taught mm -hmm. or we're, we're always soaking up information and it doesn't take long when you start talking to, to Christians, people have been in the church a long time oftentimes they'll quote something and it turns out it's the uh, it's a line from a hymn or a song and not scripture but they kind of think it's scripture mm -hmm. i've certainly done that and i've been in conversations where someone's like what's that is that like in matthew or like no that was a song that was a song it wasn't uh, the inspired word of god so if you are if you are listening to worship christian worship music you're being taught by it. It's not just an experience of enjoying the music, of meditating. You're, you're, the words are going in one ear and they're doing something in your brain and they're sticking around. Uh, they're not just going in and out. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there is a clear line there, maybe no line at all. 
Yeah, that's a good point that we're always being taught. We're always learning uh, through some mechanism. And I think one of the issues is that we've become so consumeristic in our, quote, Christian experience that people say, well, it, it drew me into a state of worship of God, right? It's so focused on the experience of how we experience God. But as a gentle reminder, Nadab and Abihu were offering fire to God, but strange fire, right? A fire that wasn't prescribed or accepted under God's law, and they were burned by fire for it. They still attempted to worship Yahweh, but not in the way that he prescribed. So this is an issue that is absolutely worth speaking about because we should see worship for what it is. We're worshiping a holy God that has a prescribed method of worshiping. What Do you have any thoughts about that or, or response to that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious if you think about it logically, there's absolutely constraints on what we can and cannot offer to God as worship. That's true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament coming. In the Old Testament, you know, you have the example of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, I think. And one of them offered offerings to God that he approved of, and the other one did not. And in the New Testament, you have the option or the the example of Ananias and Sapphira and how they offered property and sold it to God, but they were dishonest in the way that they did it, and it didn't didn't bode well for them. Or even Uzzah. so, yeah, Uzzah who was helping escort the Ark of the Covenant back from captivity with the Philistines into uh, towards Jerusalem. And it, the Ark was going to fall, and he presumed that the ground was dirtier than him as a sinful man and broke God's law and touched the Ark when he wasn't supposed to, when it was explicitly forbidden. And God was so serious about that that he was struck dead for that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even just on a a purely on a universal basis some religions would say that sacrificing people slaughtering people and putting their blood on the altar is an acceptable form of worship to their deity and no christian would say that that's acceptable to our god so that's a very extreme example but there is obviously some worship that is some expressions of worship that come from well-meaning humans that are okay and some that are not okay. And so we have to search the scriptures, extract the principles, test our conclusions and what we what we come to think of as acceptable or unacceptable. We test that against the scriptures. And if we're wrong, then we adjust. But we're searching for what is true because we worship is very serious. Um, it's It's for God. And so we need to do it the right way. Okay, so we're going to start the portion of the video in which I'm going to either show Phil some clips or read some excerpts from some books, and he's going to respond to it. Now, I've told Phil I don't want this to, I don't want him to respond in such a way that it like grabs people's attention. I want him to respond honestly and give an honest assessment as to whether or not 
the particular clip or excerpt causes concern or should cause concern and cause us to discuss these issues further. Okay, so you ready for your first clip? Okay, let me give you a little background. Uh, this video that I'm about to show Phil, I'll get out of the screen and just let you watch it by yourself, is um, Stacy Campbell, uh, Campbell, who she herself calls herself a prophetess, and she's prophesying over Bethel music specifically. Okay, so I'll give this to you. I'll show you the clip. saw Bethel music take on the impact that Vineyard music had around the world. And it was actually the music of Vineyard that reached, that reached further so that the message of signs and wonders and healing and all that could go to the earth. It was first touched often by the music and the music opened up a way for the message. And Father, I just want to thank you, God, for, for the vision you've given them. And I, I don't know how it ran, but I felt like the Lord said, he's going to give you keys through Vineyard Music because you are going to pastor a generation through sound and worship leaders from all over the world are going to join the movement and they're going to be part of this label called Bethel Music and it's going to go to many nations and many churches and it's going to be a sound of a movement around the world and Lord we bless them with vision, 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 vision and, and this young lady you are more than a songbird. Okay so I don't know if you heard everything it's like there's a lot but for anyone that have watched that at the same time, because I'll, I'll do dual screen, but it, anyone that have watched at the same time, I just want to make sure that you picked up on the fact that she said the music would be used to send the message of signs and wonders. Thinks that was signs and wonders and all that. That was the purpose of the music getting into going to the rest of the world was so that message of signs and wonders and all that would be spread. Yeah, I think that's an interesting choice of words there. It's not the way that I would express what music is supposed to do, worship music that's written to the glory of God. It's the message is the glorious Christ crucified, risen, coming again, who will rule and reign forever, who is faithful, who redeems his people, who is sanctifying us, who is powerful. You know, that's the, that's the message, not miracles and people predicting the future or uh, prophesying. Now, there are different ways that people use terminology. And so maybe the all that and the way maybe what she said before about signs and wonders she was talking about how signs and wonders are ultimately for the glory of christ and they point to him probably not based on other things i know uh, and seeing stuff from from bethel and from similar movements but um yeah i mean it's it just but on a basic level besides that it's obvious that the music music is a a pathway into the hearts of humans 
more so than normal preaching because music comes with it's i mean you're getting attacked on two fronts i mean attacked is not the right word but you the there's a melody yeah there's a melody and there is words and it's words in the, in the form of poetry is it poetry that rhymes or has a specific uh, meter to how the words fall and so you could read a passage in the bible 20 or 30 times and maybe not memorize it but you might hear a song five times and you would know the words because of because it's not just and you even if the even if what you're reading in the bible is psalms which is poetry it's poetry that's it was hebrew poetry that's translated into english so it doesn't quite speak to our hearts the same way that rhyming uh, what we would understand as rhyming poetry does but um it's yeah it just it sticks in a different way and so if you can draw people in whether they're non-christians or christians with your music and get them to just listen to it over and over it'll it'll stick in their heads and they'll be much more open to hearing the same concepts in preaching to coming to concerts or music worship events that are not just music and performance but are also preaching events and so yeah it should be no surprise to us that are, are they saying that's their goal or are they saying that's what the lord told them maybe it's a little bit of both this was more her saying that this is what god told her is going to happen and it is happening this this prophecy has proved to be correct i think it's a prophecy that's probably a net negative for the church that more and more people are getting tuned into their teaching because of the popularity of the music but we'll we'll touch more on that stuff later on mm-hmm. okay so next i'm going to read uh, a little bit of an excerpt from a book okay so some theology that i what? can i just say too that if for those of you who saw the video the woman who is speaking it, her head is shaking all around and that just kind of weirds me out i don't don't know that there's any biblical basis for that kind of trance people getting into a trance i i don't see you know jeremiah or isaiah or other old testament prophets you know they're there saying thus saith the lord if you do not repent you will die you know th- that's what they're doing and they're they're not maybe they're doing it with an object example but they're not like shaking all around i just think it's it's weird and it's yeah it it makes me uneasy to see people like that because there's no order yeah uh but, I mean, i'd have to i have to think a little bit more about it just in my gut it makes me uneasy and it makes me very suspicious yeah, and I just have to note, if there is ever suspicion in you as a believer, to then search the scriptures, Yeah. right? Concern can lead you one way or the other. It could be, like we've, we've talked about this before, it could be conviction, or it could be discernment from the Holy Spirit saying, this isn't okay, this isn't right. So never just leave it at that, never just base it off of, never just base it off your gut. 
but take that gut and examine the scriptures. Okay, so there are a lot of different books sold at Bethel.com and also at, I don't know if it's Bethel.com or Bethel books, Bethelministry.com. It's something, anyway, on the Bethel website and at their church, lots of different books. One book that has garnered a lot of attention, um, whose foreword was written by Chris Vallotton, who's one of the pastors at, at Bethel Church. I think he might be the col- in the college ministry. I'm not exactly sure, but he's a name that many people will recognize, is The Physics of Heaven. And The Physics of Heaven was written by Judy Franklin and Ellen Davis. And it also includes contributions from Bill and Benny Johnson. So husband and wife, um, pastor, and one of the, I think she's also considered co-pastor at Bethel. So I'm just going to read part of the preface of the book. You can give a short response to that and then also give you a little overview of the book. So in the preface, it says the authors uh, state their purpose in writing the book is to share, quote, share what we have discovered so you can go on your journey of discovery with God into the realms of sound, light, energy, vibrations, and quantum physics. That doesn't tell me anything. I mean, it sounds a little bit weird, but yeah, I've have no leaning one way or the other just hearing that by itself you have no leaning about what about the book yeah about i have no idea what the book is about the physics of heaven could be about i I don't know is it about what laws of physics apply in heaven so this is good i will continue if you're not familiar with the new age and i don't know how familiar you are with the new age i've probably gotten a little bit more into it than you have it's a range of spiritual beliefs which includes tenets like reincarnation is one one big tenet second astrology third psychics fourth well i think these are the main four presence of spiritual energy in physical objects so basically it's analyzing what like vibrations in heaven and how those meet earth and how we can kind of tune into bringing heaven to earth by knowing the specific uh quantifiable features of the physics of heaven that sounds ridiculous to me it sounds like they've taken if if that's what the new age movement is doing it sounds like they've just copied and pasted some of that and added some jesus into it i don't know how you'd get to that just using scripture as your source of truth and yeah it's just odd it's very odd I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You say whatever, you know, you want to say. So in terms of the new age, so it is, I know it's a broad term. The new age is a broad term and encapsulates a lot of different types of practices. What's really interesting though, if you are interested in looking this up, uh, Pew has done a lot of research on what professing Christians believe in the United States. And I don't know if it's most, it might be most professing Christians or people that like check the Christian box on a survey, believe one of these four tenets. 
and they don't know that these four tenets in terms of astrology, psychics, reincarnation, or that um, the spiritual energy in physical objects. And there's another one like Jesus is in everything, something like that. Or Jesus only says nice things. It's, you know, something like that. Um, professing believers in the United States believe at least one of those. And the reason that I bring it up is to... You mean like when Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. It's like pretty nice thing that. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason that I bring them up, th this particular point up, is to urge you to consider that the new age has already infiltrated the church. This isn't specifically just Bethel, right? This is an overarching, a set of overarching beliefs separate extra biblical beliefs that has gotten into Christian culture and become mainstream. So that's what I'm bringing up. That's what I'm, that's my, that's what I'm hypothesizing. And I'm allowing you to test that hypothesis. And let's go to our third point in second video. So I'm going to give you another video. And this is Benny Johnson, who's Bill Johnson's wife. So let me bring it up and you can give your um, response. Okay. We have, um, what, 250 international students at our school this year, and one of them from England had an experience, actually, excuse me, she's from Wales, not England, excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, she had an experience with an angel before she came to the school. She woke up one morning, and the Lord spoke to her and said, I want you to go to Mariah Chapel and say, wakey, wakey. <laughs> How many of you have heard this story? Oh, cool, not very many. Awesome. <laughs> Such a fun story. And she argued with God, and she didn't win. So she went to the chapel. How many of you have been to Mariah Chapel in Wales? Okay, Mariah Chapels is the site of the 1904 revival where Evan Roberts was. Okay, it's where the outpouring began. Actually, the outpouring began in a little chapel somewhere else in Wales that I can't pronounce the name. And I was just there and got whacked by God. That little chapel is not tarnished. And you can sit in the seat that Evan got touched by the Holy Spirit, touched is too nice of a word, he got whacked, just whacked. And you can sit in that chair and feel what happened in that room that day. It was, it's amazing. So <clears throat> anyway, she, she gets up and she goes to Mariah Chapel and she stands in front of the chapel and she goes, wakey, wakey. And the Lord whispers to her and says, how, is that how bad you want it? So she stood there, and I mean, it's right there on the busy street, and she said, of course, there were all kinds of people there that day. And she yelled, wakey, wakey, and walked, turned around and walked away. And when she turned around and walked away, she felt the earth shake under her feet. And uh, she turned around and saw this huge angel. She is a seer. She can see into the spirit realm. And she saw this huge angel stand up get up just get up and she had the sense enough to talk to the angel 
I, you know, I just don't know what I would have done. You know, you ever think about that? What if this great big huge angel st stood up? I mean, it was a huge, big, really big angel. Would you have the sense to talk to it, or would you run the other direction? <laughs> she said, You would fall on um, your knees Why are you here? And the angel said, I'm the angel of a 1904 revival. And she said, well, are you the angel that's bringing the next one? And he goes, no, I'm not the one, because the next one is going to bring many, 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 many more souls into the kingdom. <laughs> I don't know. What is... What am I supposed to say? <laughs> this is all about whether it's cause for concern of the teachers in Bethel being outside of the realm of orthodoxy. Does that bring up any red flags? Is that just a different way of practicing? What do you think? The, the thought that was going through my head while I was watching that, well, there, there are two. One is that in that sect of Christianity or cultish Christianity, whatever you want to call it, there is an incentive structure to having spiritual and mystical experiences because it shows how spiritual you are. Whereas in Christianity, in the way that we practice it, there is an incentive structure the, the incentive structure doesn't point towards that people if you if you started talking about that kind of stuff all the time uh, you wouldn't gain social capital in our church probably you'd probably lose it um, so in our in our church you know if you memorized a lot of scripture or n not that you had mystical experiences while you were praying but you just prayed a lot and people knew about it then you would gain you know that that's what people oh like wow that person is um is really serious or if you are getting in lots of conversations and sharing the gospel with people you know that would be something that people would look at you so those are those are um behaviors that arise from deep Christian discipline the having mystical experiences just seems like I guess you could fake the other stuff you know you could maybe fake memorizing scripture you could lie about praying and stuff it, ju it just seems like I, I don't know or maybe the, some of the people who are saying uh, talking about experiences they had are, are faking it or lying or maybe they are having them and if they're having them and they're not of god then they're demonic which is very scary um especially if those are the people that are out there proclaiming tr or trying to proclaim the gospel and and if people say oh yeah i like I, jesus i want to follow jesus and then they end up in a church with people who are having demonic visions that is not a good place for for, for anybody um, the other the other thought that I had was th this is a there's a, a constant refrain in some of these churches and meetings there's always like the next big revival the all these people who are gonna come and there's lots and lots of prophecies about it like where is it the the kingdom of God is surely marching forward all over the world and people are turning to Christ, but 
what these what these guys are talking about is on another level to anything that has happened in in recent memory at least in the western world and, and maybe there are a lot of things happening across the world that i don't know about but um especially if the purpose of all these signs and wonders is to prove to people that god is real you'd think that they'd be happening all over the place in the united states where we have so many skeptical people where the largest growing group of people when they're surveyed about religious affiliation is in the nuns people who say none of the above to all the the choices uh, but it's it's not so anyone who is prophesying and is prophesying falsely uh, there was a there was a penalty for that in the old testament it was a capital crime if you said this is a message from god and it turned out not to be true no one would ever trust your prophecy again and your life would be forfeit if you were bold enough to say thus saith the lord this is going to happen so um that's that's the other thing i just they there's a big game being talked and i don't see the evidence that proves that the prophecies that they're saying are true and so anyone who's prophesying like that without it coming true you should be very skeptical if not just outright reject what they have to say. So a common a common argument I think that people put up against Bethel is something similar that you said, like why, if it's happening all the time, all these events with them, why isn't it happening more in the Western world? You said something like that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't hang my hat on that type of argumentation because it doesn't seem to, it comes more from like a logical perspective, whether that, except, and not a biblical perspective. Who's, who's to say what God wants to do, how he wants to do it, where he wants to do it, when he wants to do it. However, the thing that stood out to me the most in, in that was the angel, obviously. I, I still, now tell me if I'm wrong. I cannot find any scripture in which there was an angel, well, I should say, almost every scripture I've ever read <laughs> where there was an angel present, besides when the angels were like cloaked in some way in the form of a man, right? People were terrified. Daniel has many times where he meets with like Gabriel, and he, at one point, I think it's Daniel 9, it's somewhere around there he falls to the floor and says i'm dead like i can't move and gabriel gives him back his strength right he, okay man greatly loved he calls him man greatly loved which is one of my favorite favorite passages in scripture but that is a sign to me that this seems funky when every time i hear from bethel about these angel experiences and no one's like afraid about it <laughs> There's literally, I can't find a hint of reverence actually in anything that I see in Bethel. Like reverence, it has been stripped of everything. It's, it's all very experiential and it's a high, it, it's a high experience. It's always like a manic episode. It's not a, it's not a humble or depressive episode of, of contrition or, um, um, a sorrowful heart over sin. It's always manic. It's a pattern. And if they don't seem to have the same responses 
to these visions of spiritual beings that pretty much anyone in the Bible had. So that doesn't seem consistent to me at all. Okay, so I'm going to go to another one. I'm going to read to you just from Benny Johnson's blog. This is an old one. If you've done any research into Bethel, you've heard this before. But she says, I was talking with Ray Hughes the other day and was telling him about using a 528 hertz tuning fork as a prophetic act. Someone told me that this tuning fork is called the tuning fork of love. The sound of this fork brings healing. What are your thoughts about that? Um, about that little excerpt? If you would like to hear Phil's response to that quote and some other quotes and our final thoughts on the subject, please tune in to episode two of Should We Sing Bethel Songs. Thanks for listening.